Welcome everybody to the Didactic Mind podcast, and this is a very, very special episode indeed. Uh, firstly, this is episode 50. We're up to the half century. Uh, for those of you who uh, like to play cricket, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, uh, 50 episodes is, is pretty astonishing. Uh, I never expected the podcast to run quite this long. I've been podcasting for almost a year now, uh, astonishingly enough. And uh, this week, uh, I am very, very honored. And really, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's strange even to say this for somebody like me, because I'm just some guy on the internet. Um, but I am truly honored to, to be able to give you an interview that I did, quite a long interview, in fact. It's an hour and 42 minutes, um, with uh, author, lawyer... Uh, former lawyer, I should say, and um, uh, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Tom Crackman. Uh, uh, Tom's resume speaks for itself. Uh, if you have not read his books, there will be a list of uh, his books, which I have personally read and therefore can recommend to you um, in the links in the description box, um, both for the podcast and on the blog. Um, and I cannot recommend his books highly enough. I'm a huge fan of his work. I've been reading his work for many years. And uh, it's really just a fascinating interview. It's a lot of fun to talk to him. And he's, uh, he's a very engaging uh, subject to talk with. And we uh, discussed a lot of different topics ranging from you know, the coming U.S. Civil War to um, hit, to politics around the world to his uh, to his current writings and we actually carried on the conversation uh, for some time after the the interview itself finished uh, which was a lot of fun too so uh, my sincere heartfelt thanks to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kratman um, for taking quite a large chunk of time to talk with me and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview I hope you take the time to listen to it all the way through. I know it's a long, long podcast this week, much longer than usual, but uh, well worth listening to. And even if you have to uh, break it up into bits and listen to it piece at a time, uh, really is worth listening to. So uh, as always, please make sure you subscribe to the blog. There is now a blog subscription feature, which you can add, uh, you can access via various widgets. Uh, so make sure that you subscribe to my mailing list, make sure you subscribe to the blog, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you have not already done so. So without further ado, over to the interview with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Crackman. All right, everybody, welcome to the Didactic Mind podcast. Uh, today is a very special podcast, as a matter of fact. Uh, I have on the line with me via Zoom call, uh, author uh, and formerly of the U.S. Army, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman. Uh, sir, very warm welcome to you. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be there. And, uh, well, the reason um, I really wanted to interview um, Lieutenant Colonel Kratman was because of, uh, not just because of the, the books, I'm a huge fan of the books, but also because of many interactions we've had uh, on the blog over the years. Um, sir, I, I really wanted to get your thoughts, uh, as I mentioned in our discussions, about what you see unfolding over the, the next several years in the U.S., drawing on your experiences um, 
in the military and overseas um, about what we've talked about in terms of the coming civil war. What is what is your point of view, and uh, what drives those those opinions uh, in terms of what you see uh, it, between sort of north and south or um, left and right, as it were? It's not even it, it's not north or south. Although there are tendencies in the north and south, but even a place like Massachusetts, there are towns with more in common uh, with a town in, say, Lower Alabama than either has with Birmingham or with Boston. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, most towns in Massachusetts, Second Amendment's a pretty good or right to keep and bear arms is a pretty good marker. If you go and look, I think it's on Northeast Shooters. You can find a map showing which counties and mass towns actually in Massachusetts are pretty easy on concealed carry and which are not. And in terms of geography, the towns that have uh, that are pretty pro, pretty friendly to guns um, just dominate the state geographically. Population wise, of course, they do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when we say the the war between the zip codes, which is kind of it, it's not exactly accurate, but it's pretty close. Uh, that's sort of what it's going to be like. Uh, we're not going to see any large armies maneuvering across the countryside. Um, you know, we, we're probably not going to see actual secessions. And even if we did, it wouldn't make any difference because the commonality and outlook between that small Massachusetts town and that small Alabama town make them natural allies against the rural left-wing elites. Yep. Um, is it going to kick off uh, or has it already kicked off? It might have already kicked off. It does uh, it seem might have, that way. It, it does it seem It might have started, um, it wasn't Kyle, uh, whatever his name is. Um, it was somewhere else. It was another violent incident that could have been the first shot. Yeah, it was that one. Uh, the one the, the one that springs to mind is uh, the Jay, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aaron something, um, who was the, the Trump supporter who was just shot in cold blood. I mean, he was just walking along the street and the video evidence shows that. That was before that. Uh, it was the, it was in Austin, I think, where someone attempted with an AK, former Air Force, I believe, mm-hmm. attempted to stop a currently serving Army type from, um, I want to say, 1st Cavalry Division. And, you know, when you point an AK at somebody and that somebody's armed, they're going to shoot back. Yeah. That may have been the first shot. Yeah, and it seems like we're getting more shots uh, fired right now. I think there was an incident um, yesterday. Uh, I just read about it on Vox Day's blog, um, you know, last night. Something passed my phone, but and I saw it. It was in Denver or Colorado, somewhere anyway. Yeah, yeah. um, I don't know any of the details. Yeah, only that someone else has been killed. Yeah, it was. It was definitely in Denver. I'm looking at it now, and uh, it's. I mean, there is. uh, You know. I'm not in the U.S. anymore, um, to my considerable regret. But uh, it seems as though um, things are breaking apart in the big cities in a very, very big hurry. And uh, the question is, um, how how sustainable is that attitude for the cities? Because it seems to me that uh, urban dwellers just don't seem to understand how vulnerable they really are. They they don't seem to get that their supply lines. Uh, lie among the very people that they seem to hate so much. Some of them understand it, and there, mm. there's a, a certain amount of flight from the cities right now, I understand. Uh, people in New York with 
at least the requisite two brain cells to rub together. Hmm. In the hell. Uh, but the, the cities are, you know, city. I grew up in a city. I grew up in Boston. Um, and uh, they're just, they're weird anyway. But they, they, and I think this is particularly true among minorities. Say if you're black, although I suppose it's as true if you're Hispanic. Um, all you ever see is black folks. Really. Yep. And this can give you the idea that you've got numbers you don't have. Um, and, you know, <laughs> maybe you're, uh, of course, there's a lot of, there are a lot of black folks in the military, but it's only about proportion. People think that it's overwhelmingly minority and, and it's not, particularly in the combat arms. Mm-hmm. Blacks, mm-hmm. blacks, not Hispanics, because, you know, going and learning to fight and fighting if there's a war is the manly thing to do and they're into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, blacks who manage to avoid the uh, the siren song of, of drugs and crack wars and crack wars and all that usually have a mother who's a sort of a force of nature. Yeah. And she's not generally going to let her little pride and joy into the armed forces unless it's to learn a skill. She's not going to let her investment get butchered in a war that, as far as she's concerned, is none of her business. Right. Um, so they tend to not be... Well, I mean, a lot of them are really, really good soldiers, but they're not combatants for the most part. Uh, really? And the ones who are really want to be there, and they tend to be very different. Right. Interesting. Uh, so they don't understand, the left doesn't understand how overwhelmingly um, white the the bleeding edge of the armed forces is. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I mean, they don't understand it. Uh, they also, as long as we're talking about civil war, they think, by the way, is my sound coming through okay? Yeah, I can hear you very well indeed. Um, I mean, my office is a weird place, a, a mix of metallic in the form of weapons and several <laughs> uh, books and a safe and this and that. And it kind of screws up the sound sometimes. Yeah. Um, the, the left, it, it's maybe not the, the very core of their faith, but a penultimate article of faith is in the easy, reliable, and certain modification, manipulation, improvement, degradation of man by our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they look at the military doing things that they simply can't imagine. Go out and protest for a cause. Oh yeah, sure. That's, that's fun, you know, but actually get your ass killed for it. That's a lot less fun. And they don't understand how people can do that unless they're, the, the, the military is able to change them, which you know is perfectly in accord with their article of faith. It's not true. The military can't do anything of the kind. Um, if, if the, the basic raw material isn't there to work with, we can't give it to anyone. Yeah. So they assume that the military is therefore composed of automatons who will follow any order. You know, they, they imagine me lie is just a matter of who gives the order. Right. Um, and so they think if they control the government, they also control the military. Now they'll, they'll control the, the politically astute whores of the general officer corps and the, the admiral. Yeah, that's not the military, um, which doesn't operate. They, they don't necessarily follow orders. Uh, people think they do. People look at an infantry company. They they say that an infantry company commander is the last absolute monarch on earth. Well, I was one, and I was pretty good at it too. Yeah, but you're not a monarch at all. It's a democracy inside an infantry company. It just doesn't look like it. Mm-hmm. You know, and the company commander is a. 
he's a kind of a rabble rouser, um, right. motivating figure. He's a, fig- he's a figurehead. He's, he does planning and things like that. But if he doesn't get the emotional, political support of the troops, he's not going to get anything. Yeah, it's the, it's the same issue with leadership everywhere. I mean, yes, there is a hierarchy in the military that enforces it more strictly, but I don't know of any organization where um, you can just issue an order and expect it to be obeyed if you do not have the respect, the, uh, the, the, the gravitas uh, to, to the, the buy-in, as it were, of the people. At some point in time, also, it's the affection. Yeah, exactly. There, um, there has to be some degree of affection for your leadership. Yeah, and, and you personally. Um, it's, it's a little bit weird. A lot of that affection will be derived from success. If you lead the company or the battalion to success, they'll, they'll just start developing. Oh, we like success. Yeah. And, and they'll start developing a, an attachment to you. Yeah. I had, um, in my rifle company commander for probably my rifle company command for about eight months after I left and I took over a different company in the same battalion. Um, troops would get together on the battalion commander's open door policy and, go down and ask if I'd please be pulled out of the commanding the headquarters company and be returned to them to Delta company. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I could have sworn they hated my guts on the day I left. Yeah. But apparently they did not. So. Yeah. It's a, it's an odd relationship. Uh, I think it was, I, I can't remember which union general it was. Um, I think it may have been, um, McClellan. it was McClellan. It was McClellan. That's the name of McClellan. He was saying basically, uh, you know, you have to create. You have to create something that you love. You have to. You have to love. Oh, no, that was Lee. That's Lee. Um, but McClellan's an example of an army that just loved its commander. Yeah. Even though he was kind of a failure, they still loved him. Yeah, they did. He uh, served their lives, and he took good care of them, and he trained them well. Yeah. And uh, you know, that kind of affection. No, as Lee, Lee said, yeah, you have to, or at least he's he's alleged to have said that you have to love the army. You have to be willing to see this thing you love destroyed. Um. Anyway, so the, the upshot of all of that is the left thinks it can count on the army if it has political control in Washington, mm. and it cannot. That the does army. that does seem to be my impression as well. I mean, again, I have I have no basis for this other than just a very um, rough read into what I see from the you know the, the veterans who uh, frequent my blog, and it does seem to me that. The, the, the split in the armed forces is roughly two thirds to one third, you know, two thirds, I guess you would say pro American and one third pro, uh, anarchy, uh, or, but it's, it strikes me as though it's even less than that because the people in the, in the military who are quote unquote of the left do not necessarily agree with the left's very, uh, very dangerous agenda, especially of the it's- modern left. The military is largely composed of what Walter Russell Meade called Jacksonians. Right. And they're nationalists. Um, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but violence to them is an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. Follow, follow the law while the switch is off, but as soon as it's turned on, everything goes. Yeah, start killing everyone. It's, I've, seen that, I've seen that meme. It's like, uh, uh, follow the law and start killing everyone, literally. The moment the switch is flipped, that's it. It's done. Right. Um, as, oh, and, and that works really well for us when, when they're allowed to do that, um, when they're not 
Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, it doesn't work that well. Yeah. Um, but they're also populists, which is why Trump became president about four years, four years ago. Yeah. Um, which is, is somewhat left of center. You know, they don't mind government programs that help the working class. Um, they, they don't like government programs that help the non-working class. Mm -hmm. They're not big fans of government programs that help the very rich. But, you know, that help the America, of course, has a very large working class and, and a, really kind of a small upper class. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of people um, in the armed forces. And they, 90% of them instinctively loathe all forms of liberalism and leftism. Right. So, uh, yeah, they can't really be counted on very well by the left. They really can't be counted on. They can be, they can be counted on to side almost automatically with whatever is against leftism. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, now, you mentioned uh, earlier in, in passing the, the political class of, of generals and admirals. And um, my understanding is that while Obama was in power, that group of uh, very politicized um, uh, people really became very entrenched in the Pentagon, in military intelligence, and um, throughout the, 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 the top levels of the military hierarchy. Is that, is that true? Or is that, uh, has, has there been some effort made to root them out? Um, I don't think there has been an effort made yet, uh, although there should have been. Uh, I don't think under Trump really understands the depth of the problem there. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't just Obama. It, it started under Clinton um, with a, a, arguably it starts before that. Remember that West Point is filled up by people who are nominated by politicians. Yeah. Now West Point yeah. takes who they want, but it's going to average out that among West Pointers, it, it's a much closer split uh, politically than the rest of the army is. There are, you will find more liberals from West Point as a percentage than you will from almost any other source. Yeah. Um, Add eight years of Clinton, and, and it's not so much, usually not so much trying to advance someone with a political agenda as it is getting rid of people with, a, with political agendas. That said, and it goes back to the left's inability to understand the military, um, for the most part, well, okay, how do you become a general in the, or an admiral in the armed forces? In the course of about 25 or 28 years, you're going to get evaluated by about 100 different people at, at some level, raiders, intermediate raiders, senior raiders. And you can never have pissed any of them off. Yep. Now, how do you avoid – you can't even disagree with them. I never had any problem with this, by the way. Right. But how, how do you avoid disagreeing with someone and pissing them off when they're all different and – Almost everything is a matter of the utmost moral importance, ultimately a matter of life and death and victory and defeat on the battlefield. Yeah. You know, yeah. what kind of person can do that? Well, it occurred to me a few years ago, I, mean, I know a bunch of generals that were, you know, classmates of mine and this and that. And um, a fair number of four stars. And I cannot recall a single one who ever expressed a strong opinion about anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, so, and some of them were really nice guys, or at least seemed to be. But the more I think about it, the more I think it was an instinctive 
political, well, a political instinct to make no waves, make no enemies. Um, you know, it, it says something not particularly good about someone who does that, and someone, particularly where, where you know, matters of the utmost moral importance, right? Um, and someone who can restrain himself from expressing a strong opinion about anything. Yes. So, you know, yeah, some of them are political whores who are convinced leftists. Some of them are political whores who are convinced rightists. And you can't tell which is which. Yeah. Left, tell which is which. Yeah. yeah they themselves, some of them can tell, but mostly they can't either, I don't think. Yeah. I, I remember you making that comment, actually, a couple of years back um, when I had to leave the, the, the U.S. And I, I remember you, you put it exactly like that, is uh, of the uh, people in my IOBC class who uh, – had multiple stars pinned on them. I can't remember a single one of them ever expressing a strong opinion about anything. And I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's, uh, it's not just the military. I mean, corporate life, it's like that too. If you want to get ahead, um, you have to avoid giving strong opinions. And it is, uh, I, I mean, I understand why, uh, it, it is unfortunately a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a, an issue when you're, when you're trying to get things done, but, it is an inevitable consequence of that system. It's a very politicized system to begin with, where you know your advancement depends on the opinions of other people. Yeah, but, and not just other people, but a hundred other people in the course of twenty-five or twenty-eight years. Exactly. That you have to, and you have to at least pretend you agree with all of them. Yeah, but there, there I, is a lot of them develop this odd little smile. That's the truth. They really do. Um, <laughs> And if you find that odd little smile, you know, in a lieutenant, you know, that's a guy who is a bucking for stars and B intends to get them. Right. <laughs> so there's, it's, it's very unlikely that you'll hear from, uh, in the modern military, at least, it doesn't seem to be too likely that we're going to get too many more, uh, characters like Patton or MacArthur coming out of that system anymore. No, they seem, they seem to top out at about Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel in some cases. Yeah. Um, they, um, you know, they do okay. They have a fun life. Um, but no, multiple stars are generally beyond them. There's, I, I heard of a, well, you'll get one stars occasionally. That That's true. I know a couple of those guys who topped out at one star and that were really, you know, first class officers and, and willing to, to take a stand and uh, express strong opinions on things. Yeah. But anyway, the, I think you were asking what the, um, you know, how do I see the war coming out? Well, the military is not going to, the military is first going to side with law and order. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's not available on either side, they're going to generally side with the right. And most of the generals who do, who do not will just be pushed aside. Um, what the war is going to be like, well, we've got two choices, um, bad and worse. Yes. Is a, a larger scale repeat of the dirty war in Argentina. Yeah, and I said you know, not merely because there are more of us by a factor of about twelve or thirteen than there were Argentines, but because we're a lot more vicious than they are. Um, I mean, the Argent the Argentines killed a tiny percentage of their population. Yeah, you know, I mean, they like a I don't know a tenth of a percent maybe. Right. You know, we're going to go for, if it happens, we're going to go for 10 times that, maybe 20 times that. 
Yeah, I mean that that is my estimation, roughly speaking, as well. It's going to be a war with you know ten million casualties easily, and I mean nobody who's saying these things, neither you nor me nor anyone, wants this to happen. This is like there is no avoiding it anymore. Um, I, I remember reading an article uh, some time back, and I wrote a post about it, where um, before the the war between the states. The two men from both sides could still sit down and have a very convivial, very cordial discussion and, uh, could still greet each other as brothers and, um, and, and treat each other as, as respected and honored friends and colleagues. That's not happening anymore. The, the, the country is, has pulled apart so far. It's simply not possible anymore for the two sides to see each other as, uh, respectable. And we don't speak the same language anymore. don't even speak the same language exactly and um th- there was one fascinating bit of data that came out very recently apparently the willingness on the right among conservatives to use violence has caught up with and exceeded that of the left uh the right. proportion that's people- which yep it's it's really it, it's shocking how fast it's happened within the space of a year that's exactly what's happened within less than a year in fact in, in the space of like six months after all of the, the rioting and the craziness, it's flipped. And, you know, people like me are, are basically saying, look out below. I mean, this is, this is not going to end well. The other, pro- the other possibility is worse than that, and that's Beirut, 1980s Beirut, mm. which is pretty much complete breakdown in all order that can only be repaired by a stronger power coming in and reestablishing order. There is no stronger power than to do that. You could take every uniformed soldier in the world and send them to the United States, and they're going to last about a month. Yeah. There's nobody to impose order on us until one side or the other is completely exterminated. Exactly. And they were talking 100 million dead. Exactly. There's just, there, there are too many guns and uh, too many people spread out over too big a distribution. Um, actually, that, that brings to mind a question. Um, back I mean, way back in the early days of, of the American Republic, uh, there was a nascent rebellion that brewed among the officer class. And I mean, you know the story far better than I do, but uh, George Washington basically quelled that rebellion um, by uh, appealing to his men's sense of honor and, and the fact that they, he had sacrificed so much with them in the trenches. And right. since only, then, only Washington could have pulled that off. Exactly, only Washington could have pulled it off. He was the only one with the credibility and um, the 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 personal uh, charisma, as it were, which is an odd thing to say about Washington, given what we know of of the way he did things. But um, for two hundred and fifty years since then, the U.S. military has pretty much never uh, interceded in politics like that, which, I mean, is one of the very few militaries anywhere in the world that's actually had that record. Um, we came close. Uh, we and the British both, actually. Yeah. <coughs> came close uh, during the Carter years. Really? Um, I didn't yeah. realize that. For about four years, it was always sub Rosa, you know. But for about four years, we were wondering uh, if we would have to get rid of the miserable communist son of a bitch. Wow. I didn't, I mean, I, I, I never much liked the guy. Um, I always thought he was a colossal failure as a, uh, a president, but I didn't realize it was that bad that, uh, 
uh, people in the military. It wasn't entirely fair either. Um, I mean, most of the Reagan buildup in arms wasn't Reagan. It was it was ordered under Carter. Right. Much of the deregulation as well. But Carter had, well, it was partly him, partly his international do-goodism. A good deal of it was giving away the strategic pearl of the world, the Panama Canal. Yeah. Um, but some of it was beyond his control. Uh, the Soviets appeared to be advancing fast. Yes. In a lot of places. And he took the blame for that, for not being able to credibly face them down. Yep. He couldn't. You know, he was kind of a wimp. Yep. Um, it was worse in England. I, I mean, there, there. I've got a friend of mine who was in British intelligence. He's retired now, and he's quite certain that I think it was during Wilson's years that they were not just talking about a coup; they were rehearsing one. Wow, that's shocking. Um, With the British, it is really shocking. Yeah, it's astonishing. Um, now, my personal opinion is that they weren't. What they were doing was putting on a display to terrorize uh, Wilson into leaving, which largely worked. But my Brit friend, you know, I mean, he's a more credible source than me, and he thinks they were rehearsing the coup. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that is interesting because, I mean, of course, Britain, before Thatcher came along, was uh, heading toward complete shutdown. And it took the Iron Lady um, to, to turn it around. It took uh, Ronald yeah. Magnus in the U.S. to turn things around there. Were it up to me, I would ransack Louisiana for every voodoo doctor I could find, <laughs> get Thatcher's corpse, reanimated, <laughs> reanimated in the U.S., yeah. and then run her for president as a native-born daughter of the United States. Yes, yes. Uh, she's about the only woman, I think, who could really pull it off. Um, and even then, I mean, she was a bit squishy in uh, a few areas, and she made some critical mistakes with the EU, but overall, I mean, what a woman. Uh, the, the things she accomplished with, uh, with the empire uh, were astonishing. I mean, particularly with respect to, um, in, on the war front, I, I was amazed at the fact that uh, uh, the UK was able to do what it did in the Falklands. I mean, yes, okay, they, you could argue they were fighting a sixth-rate power, but projecting um, force over that great a distance is incredible. Um, only the U.S. can really do that, and only the U.S. had that that logistical ability. The U.K. We was able to do that with, you know, on a bare shoestring, more or less. You know why they were willing to? Uh, uh, they were really willing and able to put their carriers at risk. We were going to give them a carrier under a retired Navy crew. Ah, that I didn't know. <laughs> if they had lost one, we had one on tap to give them. Not a big carrier. Um, an amphib carry, which can still carry 20 or 30 Harriers. I think. Yep. So uh, we probably had given them the planes too while we were at it. The Marines had 88 Bs. Um, so yeah, that cost, that, that, the Falklands War cost us. Um, we had a, um, what we thought was a pretty serious threat rising in El Salvador. It was a populous and fairly capable country. I mean, if you, Talk to anyone who served with Salvadoran troops in Iraq. They're, they're good soldiers. They really are. Very aggressive. You know, very gutsy as hell. Yeah. Um, where they were patrolling, there wasn't a whole lot of trouble. Uh, but, uh, you know, Nicaragua had gone communist. El Salvador appeared to be going communist. Turned Mexico, which is an incredible mess, into... Um, 
something like Nicaragua, and we're talking about potentially 30 or 40,000 mobilizable troops on our border. It was like it was a nightmare for our, for our point of view. Now, they would have been shitty troops. That's a lot of them. Um, well, the Argentines were pulling more of the weight of the war in El Salvador than we were. Mm-hmm. I think both in terms of, per- certainly in terms of personnel, but I think in terms of funding too. And when they, we sided with the Brits, blood is thicker than water, um, that was all cut off. Right. So uh, it, it was, it was, I'm sure it was a pretty hard decision on, on the part of Reagan at the time, but, uh, and it did cost us, although ultimately, well, the left lost in El Salvador because the communists lost in Europe. Yep. Uh, the, uh, where were we? Well, I mean, uh, I was, the, the point I, I was, uh, looking to was the, the fact that, again, the U.S. military has not involved itself in politics. And in general, Western militaries have a tradition of, of staying out of politics. The Society of Cincinnatus, as it were, um, basically, that, uh, leave politics to the politicians and the military to killing people and breaking things. And that, that's, that's a very good division. It's, it's worked very well as a model. But in the event of a constitutional crisis, which does appear to be what the U.S. is heading towards, um, how how is the military going to get involved? Because if you look at one potential scenario, uh, one possibly likely scenario, uh, the God Emperor is reelected. Trump Trump wins the the Electoral College vote at least initially, but then you have the uh, the mail in ballots coming in, which you know will take weeks to sort out. Uh, it appears as though Biden may well uh, win on the, um, on, on the basis of mail-in ballots. Uh, Trump refuses to recognize the election's legitimacy, which is, you know, the favorite scenario of the left. Um, Nancy Pelosi and Congress get involved and invoke... Trump wins. Okay. The election isn't by headcount to the House. Yeah. It's by state delegations, of which yep. there are... Trump's got a probably 27 of those. Right. Which will still piss off the left. Yes. I, th- I think the intermediate step, though, is that um, Amy Barrett, whatever the hell her final name is, is sent to the Supreme Court, and so Trump wins what he wants in the Supreme Court, which is to kick it to the House. Yep. Um, and then the left goes wild, but think there are probably only two or 3,000 actual hardcore Antifa, I'll use the term advisedly, operatives. Um, you don't see them rioting in every city. Um, you see them in a few places that are pretty safe. Mm-hmm. So they play the cards very close to their chest. They don't take a lot of risks because there aren't that many of them. Right. Now, there's more sympathizers than that, but I doubt if you could come up with 100,000 people in all of the United States that are all that much in sympathy with Antifa. Yep. You know, enough to provide a safe house buy a rifle or a pistol or ammunition. Um, they're extremely vulnerable, therefore. They are, I mean, but, but there's definitely, I mean, it, it's ve- becoming very clear that there is some degree, a considerable degree of organization and training behind them. I mean, yeah, yeah uh, there is. Those two or 3,000 are, you know, pretty effective yep. for two or 3,000 people. And the courts, of course, can't be relied upon to, this was one of the problems Argentina had. Mm. 
is that the, the, the judges were leftists. And, and it only takes, you know, if you do enough appeals, eventually you'll get the judge that'll toss your case out. Exactly. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the army went to, um, to extra legal measures is because there was no, the law was of no help to them. Um, and they made a, they made a couple of mistakes. They, their net was altogether too fine and not big enough. Yep. But, uh, that we'll end up doing the same things. Um, we're going to, you know, I, I think the next civil war is more likely than not going to be assassinations, kidnappings, bank robberies, bombings, and death squads. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be, you know, maneuvering of two armies in, in large scale, um, uh, encounters in fields. It's not going to be Fredericksburg or, or Gettysburg or anything like that. It's going to be much more, um, low level, but extremely vicious. I mean, um, to a degree that we haven't really seen before. Um, not here. I mean, other countries have yeah. Argentina, Brazil, um, Cuba. Under the Reds, I'm sure I saw some of it. I'm pretty sure the early years and well, hell, even the late years in the Soviet Union saw a good deal of it. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I mean, the left is actually pretty incompetent at violence, and people will say, "Well, what about the Red Army?" Yeah, the Red Army wasn't left wing. Okay, the Red Army was made up of the exact same kind of people that made up the U.S. Army. Yeah, and they're not left wing; they're just soldiers doing yeah. a soldier's job. But until the left gets control of the means of violence, they're pretty, you know, incompetent. There was a, a great example is the Bader Meinhof gang tried to, uh, five of them, I think, tried to kidnap an Air Force sergeant on a bicycle in mm. Germany. Now, we're not talking, you know, an Army or Marine sergeant. We're not talking an infantry sergeant. This guy's not a, you know, a ranger. He's not special force. He's just some Air Force guy. Right. And he beat him up. Right. You know, beat him up. One guy on a bicycle beats up five red terrorists yeah. and drives them off and goes on his way to work. Um, they, you know, as a general rule, they are pretty incompetent. You know, you get that asshole currently, Professor Bill Ayers, uh, and I'm sure he's on someone's list. He'll, he'll not be missed. Um, He's part of a group that's building bombs, and they're yeah. so incompetent yeah. they blow themselves up with the bombs. Yeah, yeah, but no. Uh, I mean, we there is definitely some funding behind them, but yes, that the, the it, it seems as though they have learned from their earlier encounters. I, I remember uh, a couple of years ago uh, there was an encounter between uh, Antifa support, well, actual Antifa mobsters, and. Uh, basically some patriots at a rally in Austin and the, the Antifas uh, just got absolutely destroyed. I mean, humiliated. Like uh, I think the reports of a, a couple of them getting their, their underpants pulled over, like wedgied almost um, getting their pants pulled over their heads. And uh, it, it, it was glorious, but um, it, it, it seems as though they have been learning from those experiences. They, they are definitely uh, becoming much more violent and worryingly, uh, for the rest of the country, the civil well, institutions are behind them now. Yeah, I mean, if you think, thank God Antifa is becoming more violent. You know, what would we do if Antifa weren't become, becoming more violent? Mm. You know, what, how would recruiting for death squads work well, if yeah. Antifa weren't more violent? Yeah. Speaking of, you want to know what the, how the death squads are going to break out organization-wise? Yeah, go ahead. 
a lot of them aren't going to be organized at all. They're going to be individuals like me, but not me. And the reason not me is I'm just well enough known <laughs> that at the first assassination within <laughs> miles of where I live, I'm going to have the FBI knocking on my door. No, yeah. I've got to stay pretty passive, at least for now. Right. Um, but it's going to be individuals who are uh, you bifurcate those into those with serious training and those without. Yep. Um, and then further bifurcate that into those who have to account for their time, in other words, still working, or those like me who are free uh, slash retired. It would be very hard to pin down my whereabouts, for example. Yep. Because I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to talk on my phone. I don't have to be on my computer. I don't have to report to work every day. Yep. And there a lot of people like me who have substantial, significant training and don't have to account for their time. And, you know, if one in a thousand of them decided to do something, it would overtax the FBI and local law enforcement to the point of complete failure. Right. Especially so, if the FBI and local law enforcement make it clear which side they're on, which is, um, I think it's been very demoralizing for a lot of people uh, who think like you and me to see the civil institutions acting against them. But, you know, the question is, what do you do in that situation? Well, nothing much so far, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. This is, this is all out of our hands, um, really. It, it's a beginning, maybe the beginning of an avalanche that might stop on its own due to, due to forces and terrain we can't see, or might just continue on to the valley. Um, the other group, and they're, they're kind of dangerous, is small groups of friends. And they might have training or they might not, but one person with training and four other guys without quickly become five guys with. Yep. And, um, you know, they're just friends well known to each other. Could be the VFW or the American Legion. Could be the Elks, uh, a Moose Lodge, Knights of Columbus. Could be some bowling team, maybe. Yep. Um, and they'll, what, what's really wild about them is they'll talk themselves into doing things because they're a group uh, that they would never do as individuals. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then this is where the, the, the left is particularly stupid. Cops have been laid off or downsized or defunded. They not only have enough training for the purpose, yeah. But they understand crime and they understand investigations well enough to cover their tracks. Exactly. And they have the motivation now as well because they absolutely have the motivation. Yeah. Um, now, what's the most dangerous about those is they're completely outside the law, um, which doesn't therefore allow the left to take refuge in the law, which interestingly enough, the left absolutely needs yes. to prosper. Um, if they can't hide behind the law, they don't get anywhere. They're right. not violence, and there aren't that many of them. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, <laughs> if Antifa starts seeing that, they really should start shitting themselves. Yep. Because it means they're in um, oh, awful trouble. And yeah. No refuge. Yeah. And, unless, insofar as they go report to their plane, their nearest police station and confess to a crime, guilty or not, just to get put behind the bars with security. Um, then, uh, another that that's unofficial. If the government gets involved, your governments, I should say different levels, you, you're going to see 
one of a couple of things, uh, local cops, um, solving their problems locally mm-hmm. at the behest of their department, not as individuals, but, or at small groups, but because their department has set aside a little, um, sub office that you might call the, uh, uh the precinct of, um, unaf- of death squads. Yep. Um, and you might pe- people who think this could never happen happen. You know, they might cite to, well, you know, the police don't do this with crime. Oh, come on! You can't tell the difference between crime and political crime. <laughs> this kind of political crime. Right. This kind of political crime is trying to get them all fired. Therefore, threatening their livelihoods, their wives and children. Criminals, on the other hand, are absolutely necessary to the police maintaining a decent standard of living. Yep. And ultimately. I mean, sure, we were all promised death camps if Trump was elected, but you know it didn't happen. Yeah, um, it's it's not Trump. Trump they have to worry about it. So whoever might come after him, exactly, That's... who uh, does a counter purge of the military and sets the military and national law enforcement to obliterating the left. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we sort of came close to that in the '60s and '70s. Um, the left was kind of on the run. Because there was there were really no limits on what you could do to them. Ah, they were resisting arrest. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's where a lot of that uh, counter reaction to you know reading people their rights came from. Because I mean, the, we look at the chaos in American cities, and um, a lot of Americans, you know, I, I speak from just my experience here. I, I see a lot of Americans reacting to the violence in their cities and saying, "Oh my God, I, this is." This isn't America. What's going on here? And I'm like, you guys, you don't seem to understand. You're not immune to the laws of history and culture. Um, I, I lived, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was in, uh, I was living in Indonesia and, uh, I lived through the collapse of, uh, a government system. I, I lived through almost daily rioting, uh, in the streets. I was fine. Um, you know, I, we were living in, in expat enclaves at the time. Um, but I've seen what happens when a government completely uh, breaks down and the military decides to start taking things into its own hands. And in Indonesia, it was, it was a fortunate in, in instance that the military was actually a very trusted institution and deposed, led to the, led to the fall of that government. It could very easily have gone the other way and they could have started shooting everybody. Um, interestingly, the most trusted institution in the United States is the military. Yes, exactly. And, the the question then become I mean it, it's becoming clear who they're going to side with but you raise a very good point that uh, Donald Trump is not the man that the left should fear it's he's not the man that the uh, the the George Soros types or the BLM types or the Antifa types should really fear because he is basically at heart a civic nationalist he's a he's a boomer or a civnat um, the question is who comes after that because Donald Trump's first instinct is really to negotiate not to shoot, but whoever comes on after him, who is much more reactionary, much less uh, willing to play nice, um, that is when things are going to get really interesting. And I, I you know, um, whoops, sorry, one second. Uh, I reckon that's going to happen in the next, you know, couple of presidential election cycles. It's not going to take very long. Probably not, but the United States isn't, for the next hundred years, we're never going to be more than one election away from a communist tyranny. Yeah. Yeah. The demographics. Eventually they may die out, but 
you know, it, it's life or death every election from now on. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a cliche. We've, uh, we hear that every election, but it does increasingly appear to be looking that way because 2016 was the first election I can remember where there was an actual choice in, in living memory. It's the, it's like, there's a very clear choice to be made here. And it's, it's between two very different people, very different philosophies. And, uh, thank God America chose, uh, chose Donald Trump. That's all I can say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'd already be in a civil war if Hillary had been elected. And I know we would be because I'd have started it. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember I, I read your book, uh, A State of Disobedience. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how well you, uh, you painted the Clinton character. When did you write that book, by the way? 2002. Right. So, wow. I mean, that was even earlier than John Ringo wrote uh, The Lost Centurion. And both of you, um, in, in your own ways, you kind of predicted what was to come. Um, and well, but it didn't come. The important yeah. thing is, it didn't come. but yeah, Hillary, um, oh God. <laughs> I have no, you know, I, I've got this rule that I don't, I don't speak ill of the dead, but that's not going to be true when Hillary dies. Yeah. You know, it's true when she's living. It's going to be true when she's dead. Yes. She's an evil bitch. Yeah. She is scary. I mean, there, there's something about her that I find deeply, deeply unsettling. There's something you look in her eyes, you look at her face. I mean, there aren't many people that I think are genuinely evil that you can, you can just look at them and you know that they're evil. Um, Hillary Clinton, there's something very, very messed up about that woman. I don't know what it is. I don't know what happened, but there is something deeply unsettling about her. Yeah. Well, one possibility is she, well, you'd think it was a possibility that she sold her soul to the devil, but of course she doesn't have a soul to sell. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, I have family members who've, who've met her, I, um, in, uh, in various places, uh, they, they are of course very much hardcore Democrats. Um, but they, they have dined with the Clintons. They have met the Clintons and, they tell me uh, Hillary's a, a very, very smart cookie. She's uh, extremely intelligent and she knows what she's talking about. I'm like, yeah, but I wouldn't want to be in the same room as that woman. I mean, she's, she's terrifying. She's, uh, she, she, she looks like she wants to eat your brains for breakfast. <laughs> it, it, it's funny that, you know, as she's gotten older, that's become more obvious. Too. Yes. Yes, it really is. Um, and the fun thing is she started out as a Goldwater girl. The, the only, you know, um, the, the throwaway line that I've come across is, uh, what is it? You know, that doesn't mean anything. Satan used to work for God. It's the same thing. Well, I don't think she has any political principles. Uh, I, she, there's no, uh, no contradiction between her being a Goldwater girl and her being the, the left wing candidate, um, for 2016, because she doesn't believe any of it. All she believes in is her own advancement. Yeah. And power. Uh, there are other people like that, but she's gone further than most of them have. Yes. Yeah. She is, uh, it's becoming very clear. She is all about, and uh, about power and she can't accept when she's defeated. She, she's still going on and on four years later about how orange man bad and bad orange man beat me. And I was, it was supposed to be my time. Like, dude, get over it. I mean, you lost. But uh, I looked at the section of the Constitution that, that said it was good. It was her turn. Yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing that says you know that there must be a Clinton in power at this particular point. No, 
doesn't exist. Um, but kind of like that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's, you know, dying wishes. Yeah. Well, they're not in the Constitution. Yeah, exactly. And the, the funniest thing is uh, Joe Biden himself actually uh, laid out the argument many, many years ago where he said, advice and consent of the Senate. Advice and consent. And if the Senate doesn't uh, agree, then there's sort all that the president can do about it. The, the president has a duty to nominate a judge. The Senate has a duty to consider it and uh, either agree with it or reject it. And if both have performed their duties, there's no constitutional issue. And this is Joe Biden saying this, you know, 30, 40 odd years ago, uh, right. whenever it was, um, which is remarkable given his mental decline now. Um, right. He may have been a decent left to center president yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. Now it's it's very clear he's he's completely owned by um, by the left itself. If, um, if we could have had him instead of Obama, the country, it, you know, in, in 2008, the country would have been in better shape. Mm. A lot better shape. Yeah. Um, probably because he would have been less, much less radical, much less active, and would have taken a lot more naps, which uh, well, would have that helped. That too. His instincts are moderate for the most part. Yeah, it seems like uh, like Clinton, actually. I didn't like Clinton. I loathe Clinton. Um, I, I loathe him, among other reasons, because he traded the chance to be a truly great president for blowjobs, a couple of blowjobs from the fat girl. Yep. You know, I, th there's something wrong there, you know? Right. Uh, his wife didn't mind, but, you know, even so, I, I think they had an, an understanding, too. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, if it had been Biden in 2008, We'd have survived that reasonably well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't know what's uh, what's coming, but it is becoming very, very clear. The left is pulled away and uh, is way outside of what used to be considered normal or sensible. And they are. Uh, the the country is very clearly splitting itself, tearing itself apart, and it is happening. As as you said, it's happening um, not just at the state level, but lower down than that at the county level. Um, it's not as neat a division as many of us would like to believe it is. It's not just one or two states uh, that are going to break away. Like if you look at uh, California, you know, in terms of the total number of counties, actually a very significant proportion of California is red, but it's just not very populous. Those aren't the populous counties that are red. No, it's around San Francisco, LA, San, well, even San Diego itself is fairly right wing. Mm. But that's just one urbanization in California. All the rest tend to be pretty hard left. Right. Lunatic, really. Yeah. I and mean, even Lenin would look at these people and say, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> these people are crazy. Uh, particularly the, the, the San Francisco types. I mean, what are these people on? You know, um, San Francisco used to be such a beautiful city. Now you, you walk along, it's, it's covered not in dog feces, in human feces all around the city. It's unbelievable. Um, and, what they've done, you know, to needles, and you know, I think they've got a parade every year with public sex displays. Yeah, very sorts, usually homosexual. Yeah, which is, you know, I don't really give a shit, but in public, well, not not such a good idea. Yeah, it's uh, it is becoming way over the top, and it's, it's it's one of the reasons why I'm like I'm grateful that I'm not in the U.S. anymore, as much as I miss being there. Um, and and the funny thing is. You tell people in other cultures about this stuff. I mean, there, there is a there is a view still in much of the rest of the world that USA is still this amazing place. I, I talk to people in Russia, 
um, about what I saw in the U.S., not what I think, but what I actually saw in the streets of New York and, and other places. And they're like, are you serious? They have a gay pride parade every year? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, this is what happens. Um, you know, you, you take your kids out for a walk and you see two guys dry humping each other in a float and that's considered normal. And they're like, are you, you're, 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 you're joking, right? And I say, no, that's, that's the truth. They can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very strange times that we live in. But um, I, I want to ask you actually about, um, uh, about this, this theory of fourth generation warfare, which is, uh, has taken hold a lot um, in, in these circles. And you're not a big fan of that theory from, from what I understand it. I mean, you've written a number of uh, articles and, and posts and comments about it. And I, I'd just like to, um, uh, to ask you about uh, how you see things playing out because you, you, you argue that it's not going to be fourth generation warfare. It's going to be more like zero generation warfare where right. there are no rules anymore. There, there are no... We're going to discuss that in the first three categories of death schools. Yeah. Um, we've already discussed it. That it, that's zero generation warfare. Yeah, no and, civility. And it, it's not that it, not just no civility. There's no way to stop it. No one's yep. in charge. Who do you negotiate to bring about peace? Yes, exactly. There isn't any. Um, it, it's it's war to extermination or failing extermination. War forever. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I might like that a little bit. All right, a lot. But um, I'm, I'm just one person. You don't have to go and have a perpetual war just to make me happy. Yes. Um, the, uh, it, it, in the first place, it's not a positive. Okay. For the, for the reasons given it's, it, there's no way to stop it and there's no restraint on it. Um, and it is unlikely to win, you know, no, anyone, no one engaged in, in zero generation warfare is going to win. Yeah. Uh, it'll just go on at greater or lesser degrees. Every time you assassinate somebody, you're also giving a little shot in the arm to your enemy's recruiting efforts. Um, that's one half. Of it. The other half of it is the narrative. It, 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 it's to a good extent about the tactical and strategic narrative, which are a, a bit different. Yep. Um, and that's why that the reason for the killing and the various, you know, one, I'll mention it later, perhaps if we, if we have a chance, but um, I've been working with a, a, a Brit friend of mine, same one actually who mentioned the potential rehearsal for a Wilson coup mm -hmm. um, on a, a book partly written now called uh, the care and cleaning of your right wing death squad. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, and, and it's oriented at, at the left, actually. Right. It's oriented at warning them that this is what you're creating. Yeah. So they are, in fact, your death squad. But we're still kicking around specifically the narrative, you know, and, and its place in it. And, you know, I kind of balk at giving it as much prominence as he does. I mean, the narrative to me exists as a means of generating more force. Yep. And I don't think he sees it quite that way. And, and I'm trying to come because he understands a, a lot of this a lot better than I do. I think I understand war pretty well, but you know, there, there are nuances here and there where I may not be as good as someone else. Um, so I'm still, I'm, I'm still struggling to get it, but I, because to me, again, the narrative is just about generating more force. Yeah. Um, 
which may be irrelevant in zero generation warfare. Uh, it, part of the reason I object to the expression fourth generation warfare is, is that it, it is impliedly therefore an advancement on third generation warfare. No, it's not, it's a regression. Yeah. Um, it's a regression to Og bringing Mog with a rock. Exactly, Mog. exactly. Violence has basically been removed from the purview of the state and is now at a much, much lower level, which is why um, already we're seeing the violence in the streets. It's, it's not the kind of violence where hundreds or thousands of people are slaughtered in the, in, in the course of a single day, and they arrive there with the purpose of slaughter. It's, it's much more random, much more, um, much more sporadic than that, but it is no less horrific. In, in some ways, it's even worse, because these are ordinary people who are getting killed. Um, but I, I personally, I think with 20 willing men and a relatively small budget, I could probably stop this, but, but, you know, again, I, I'm too obvious. I yeah. can't. <laughs> Someone could. Yeah. Um, actually, um, talking about, uh, your, your books and, and applications to real life, uh, looking at, uh, Caliphate, which I, I read, um, I think last year, um, you were, uh, sorry. Blacker. Uh, yeah. Um, I, uh, looking at that, I mean, I remember that, uh, you were basically very down on the prospects of Europe resisting Islamic, uh, advancement. Uh, has that thesis changed much in, in the intervening years or are you still looking at uh, Europe more or less turning into some kind of an Islamized caliphate? Well, they don't have they don't have an ideological or philosophical or moral counter to Islam. Mm -hmm. They do not present themselves as strong compared to Islam. Yes. They do not fuck enough and have kids enough. That's true. Um, although, be it noted in Caliphate, I jump-started that by having a, a, a nuclear attack on the U.S. resulting in near extinction of, of every major Islamic city in the world. Yep. Um, which, you know, with resultant flood of hundreds of millions of refugees to Europe, which Europe lacks the will to stop. Yes. Uh, but that was just a bit affecting the timing. Ultimately, yes, I, I think Europe is going to fall to Islam. Yes. And yeah. I don't lose any real sleep over that. I don't care about that. Yeah. Um, I, they have kind of brought it on themselves. I mean, if I look at, um, you know, I, I used to travel pretty frequently to uh, the UK and I was there uh, last summer and I looked around and I was like, I don't recognize London. This is not the London that I went to school in. This is not the London that where I studied university. Uh, it's a completely different city. It's not even English anymore. And a lot of England does feel that way now. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, again, I talk to Russians about this stuff and I, I, they look at what's happening in Europe. They're like, we would never permit that here. That, that's, it would not be allowed. I mean, uh, there are, there's a large population of Muslim migrant workers working in Russia. They do not misbehave the way that they are allowed to misbehave in continental Europe. Um, so they, they really have brought it on themselves in some ways, I think. Right. Um, and it's, it's in large part the political class trying to elect a new people, like yeah. our Democrats are trying to do with Mexicans. And well, not just Mexicans, but Mexicans are the largest single percentage. Um, 
you know, they're, they're trying to ensure their own power. And if it costs, causes the death of their civilizations, well, so what? You know? Yeah. And it is all about power for them. It's a naked exercise in, in power. Um, Funny you should say naked, because I'm becoming ever more convinced that other than for sex, the left doesn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, um, it does seem that way quite a lot of the time, especially these days with the, the number of sex scandals that uh, leftist politicians keep getting caught in. It used to be on the right. I mean, it used to be, uh, or not on the right, but um, Republicans certainly uh, yeah, used to get not. caught in this stuff all the time. Now it's very much on the left. Uh, and it's getting weirder by the day. Oh, yeah. Um, particularly where the children are concerned. Oh, oh yeah. That, uh, I mean, I, I am very much looking forward to the day when um, impalement is, is instated as a punishment for pedophilia. Yeah. Uh, and well, any form of rape, actually. Yeah, it's, it's getting horrifying. You know, um, castration for first-time offenders and, and impalement uh, for people who have been found to have uh, yeah, screw the first time offense kill him it'll get better with age mm. <laughs> yeah um bloodthirsty it, it sounds like it's bloodthirsty but it's like it'd be a very very effective deterrent um i'm i, I don't I see the problem with this i want them dead yeah and i don't have to deter them i don't have to yeah. worry about them it's like uh, just, just kill them outright yep yeah. uh, any of the common law felonies kill them mm. you know what those are um, well, rape is definitely one of them. Uh, rape was one. Um, I'll redact sodomy from this because, you know, 21st century. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll be that quote enlightened unquote, but yeah. it's uh, murder, robbery, a mayhem, which basically means malicious wounding, um, rape, uh, larceny, which includes shoplifting, interestingly enough, um, arson, um, manslaughter and burglary. All burglary. Burglary. Oh yes. Wow. That is uh that is definitely a step further than most people would go. But hey, yeah. um, it would be effective. I'll I'll grant you that. It would definitely be highly effective. Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> you're not worried about. <laughs> I, I when I was in law school, I, I had occasion. Well, I didn't have occasion. I had motivation to go dig into all of these supposedly innocent people saved from death row yeah it's not really what happened really yeah there mm -hmm. are a couple there are a couple of cases of this but for the most part the people who were saved from death row um were not saved on factual grounds but on procedural grounds they were still guilty of sin but you know when you're executing all common law felons you don't have to worry so much about that right yeah yeah uh, maybe it's hard to prove someone's motivation in a murder but it's not hard to prove someone broke into someone's house. Well, exactly. It's, he was there. Um, it's not that difficult to figure out. Um, yeah, uh, actually, how did you manage to survive through law school? Um, being, I mean, well, being you uh, and being in an environment that is as uh, left of center as, as a law school typically tends to be. How, how, well, how did that happen? First place, I went to maybe the only high upper end conservative law school going. Right, Washington Lee, and it wasn't that conservative. And I was outside the Overton window, but I wasn't ridiculously outside the Overton window. Ah, so you were you were more mellow back then, or more um, centrist? I, I was still outside the mainstream, but I was closer there than I would have been some other place. Um, I, for that matter, I picked my uh, yeah, I could have gotten into Harvard if I wanted to for undergrad. Um, 
In fact, Harvard was founded to give my high school a place for its first graduating class to continue their studies. And that's the truth. Right. Um, but uh, I went to BC instead because at the time, BC was still a pretty conservative school. You know, and, and my high school, Boston Latin, was a conservative, conservative place. So I've managed to avoid most of that. You know, I can't, if I went to Harvard today, even then I couldn't imagine it. But if I went today, I'd be kicked out within a day or two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, it's remarkable how, how far to the left most college campuses have, have, have gone. And uh, it's, I mean, I thought they were kind of loony left when, when I was in university, you know, however many years that ago that was. Um, and it wasn't that far, that long ago. But um, even in the intervening, you know, 12, 15, 20 years, um, things have devolved remarkably quickly to the point where it's like uh, you, looking at modern universities, you, you really do start asking yourself, what is the point of these institutions? Um, this, is, this would be the first place to send those very same death squads that you're talking about because this is exactly where the heart of the, uh, the, 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 the core of the cancer itself exists. This is where you get rid of it. Right. If, if the dirty war starts here, um, yeah. Antifa isn't even, well, they are target one, but they're not target two. Target two are left-wing academics, um, not just in the sociology department, sociology department and not just in women's studies, mm. left-wing academics across the board, left-wing judges, left-wing lawyers, left-wing uber-rich. Um, you know, I don't think Zuckerberg can buy enough security, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Bezos can buy enough security. Yeah. I mean, he'd have to have his own private, like full on military just to protect himself. And even then something can get through. That's, that's the, the part these people keep forgetting. They I couldn't trust him if he did. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, the, the question becomes, uh, when you have small but highly effective, highly motivated groups of people uh, doing very bad things and targeting your own security people, targeting their families, how secure are you really? Well, not very, as it turns out. Nope. And your kids, your kids are targets, your wife's a target, your girlfriend's yeah. a target. Both yeah. at the same time are targets. Yeah. Then yeah. your options are restrained. Uh, and I mean, I think, uh, you know, you, you, you wrote about this as well in your Carrera series, uh, as I recall, uh, in the Lotus Eaters and in a, in a couple of subsequent books, you were talking about, um, politically targeted assassinations of, of people and how effective that is as a deterrent of, uh, stupid behavior on the part of one side or another. It does strike me as though that's exactly what we're going to be seeing over the next, you know, uh, four to, four to eight years. Prescient of me, wasn't it? Mm. That's the, that's the interesting thing is like reading your books, reading John Ringo's books. I'm like, how do you guys come up with these plots? Because I look at what's happening out there right now. I'm like, wow, you guys really nailed it. Uh, you and, you and John in particular, uh, you, you guys really, uh, were able to predict a lot of these things happening beforehand. I, I I'm really curious. Like how did, what? I have what, no it? idea. So it's just, <laughs> I don't know how, how. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, seems to me that that's just in the future. You know? mm. 
And um, speaking of the future, uh, you actually have a, a new book in the Carrera series out now, book eight. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. I only uh, found out about it a couple of weeks ago. But um, in, in terms of, uh, for those, I mean, I'm sure most people listening to this have probably either heard of them or read them. Uh, but in terms of the Carrera series, um, what, what inspired you to, to write those books and what has kept you going ever since then, since, since the, the first book, which was really like, you know, two or three books split out, uh, over the course of, uh, over the course of time? Yeah. Well, if you, actually, I suppose the first two books could have been two books each, but they were mm. really one book about, I suppose around 550,000 words, completely unbindable. Uh, but they were the same book. They started that way. Um, it actually started with something that happened. I wasn't there. It was described to me by a friend of mine. Uh, that happened in Panama when we invaded in 1989. Uh, he went in with, um, I think it was 3rd Ranger Battalion? Mm-hmm. To Rio Ata, which is a town with an airstrip east of it that runs, actually, the, the airstrip runs across the highway, or it did. I don't know if it still does. Uh, anyway, a woman got confused um, by the, the fighting and the, the firing and the AC-130 shooting from overhead, I think. And instead of driving away from it, she drove into it. Yeah. My friend with it was with a roadblock of, of rangers, actually, that were just supposed to keep, you know, anybody from coming in. And now, mind you, at this point in time, they already had reports of uh, drive-by attacks uh, by the Panamanians on our forces. My, we're invading. The Panamanians weren't doing anything wrong here. Yeah. Okay. They were they were doing their best as well as they could, but with what they had to work with, which wasn't much. Um. So the Rangers are all hyped up, and they see this car coming towards them that refuses to stop. So they toasted it, really toasted it. And the woman and her probably about eighteen month old baby were just slaughtered. Yep. You know, and I had not a friend, somebody I'd been a lieutenant with that I really loathed who was in whichever range of battalion that was at that time. And I think he might've been the company commander of the troops concerned, but I'm not sure of that kind of thing to do. But I asked myself, what if that had been my wife and kids? Cause my wife is Panamanian and yep. she had a brother on the other side during it and a couple of cousins actually during the invasion. What if she had been visiting them when it kicked off and it was her, what would this guy have done? Yep. And my answer was he would have, buried the bodies in an unmarked grave and planted any evidence found in the nearest Panamanian police station and tried to build pin the blame on them. Yep. Because even if it wasn't his fault, yeah. if it was a perfectly legitimate shooting, um, the army would eliminate an, from advancement anyone who brought that kind of risk upon it. Yep. Like public relations risk. And then, okay, well, what if it's somebody else's Panamanian wife and they do that and he finds out and he goes to the army for justice. What would the army then do? And the answer is, they'll try to bribe him and suppress the information. Yep. Um, and what would that person then do? And my answer was, well, maybe he wages a private war against the United States. Yep. And that's how the first the book of uh, the series really began, was not with a war against the Muslims or an eventual war against the foreign union and the Zhang, but with a guy waging war against his own, co- disloyally waging war against his own country for the disloyalty it showed to him. Yeah. In some ways, it was a better morality play than what I wrote. It wasn't as well written. 
Um, then, you know, 911 kicked off and yeah. I figured, well, no, the country doesn't need a lesson in, uh, in humility and in not being arrogant. It probably needs a bit more of motivation to fight. So I wrote it. I rewrote it for that, but that's not how it began. And that, by the way, the book you're going to read is really the end of the series. Really? Oh, that's, yeah. that's a, that's a real shame, actually. Um, that's, that's too bad. Uh, I, I've, I'm, I, I'm a huge fan of the series. I, I love the characters. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that it's ending, uh, in all honesty. Well, uh, if I live long enough, I may take it up in the same universe, but a different series. Right. For example, uh, uh, well, as, and, and there's going to be, there are probably going to be a few spinoffs. Like, um, you're familiar with Peter Grant. Yep. Writer, former Roman Catholic priest. Good guy. Yep. Peter and I are under contract to do something called Unto the Last Generation. Interesting. Um, Peter had a heart attack, and he he survived it pretty well. But the medicine he's on has ruined his concentration. I've been there; I know what it's like. Right. So uh, <clears throat> that's on deferment for a while. But under the last generation is a um, short version: a an orphan raised in orphanages and foster homes joins the army and finds for the very first time a family in the form of his special forces team. They, they're going to deploy to a war zone that resembles Afghanistan a good deal, Pashtia. Yep. They all take out insurance policies payable to a trust for the benefit of whoever may survive. Mm -hmm. He's the only one who survives. And he blames it on left-wing lawyers and academics. Right. The loss of his family. A little bit like Carrera, but it's an artificial rather than a natural family. Yep. Um, and so he resolves to kill as many of them as he possibly can. Mm. And I, I discovered in the course of writing what I've written that I really enjoy planning assassinations. <laughs> I've noticed, yeah. I've noticed. Um, there's a couple of profs in Harvard, uh, one of whom actually bears considerable responsibility for uh, the Constitution inflicted on Iraq. Yeah. A Jewish, I believe, uh, married an Asian woman, Korean, I think. Well, American, Korean. Had kids, now divorced. Well, you know, I mean, I tracked down to his house and her house and where the kids were likely to be on any given weekend. <laughs> I planned the assassination of it. <laughs> wow. Um, that is, uh, that is detailed, uh, is, is all I can say to that. Um, yeah. I, I hope he recognizes himself. Yeah. <laughs> it, really it'll be interesting because, I mean, it's, uh, it's assassinations and especially crucifixions. Uh, I have to say, uh, your, your crucifixions are, um, astonishingly detailed uh and i i mean whenever i read them i'm not sure whether i want to feel sympathy for the character or feel glee at the fact that somebody just very despicable just got off in the most horrific way possible but i have to say however you you plan them they're they're very well done uh you, you do have a, a real taste for crucifixions well it's not so much a taste as um as you say they're they're kind of the ultimate uh in, in terms of, but one of the prerequisites of capital punishment is that it can't undermine or impugn the dignity of the law and the state by requiring extra work. Right. You know, you shouldn't have to keep working at it. That's why things like, you know, the boat where you force feed people so he shits and bugs lay eggs and he's slowly killed by that. No, no, that, that requires more work. Hanging, drawing, and quartering requires more work. Yeah. Crucifixion, you put them up and it's all on, you know, as miserable a death just about as can be imagined. Yep. And it's all on the victim. He does all of it. 
Yeah. So it, it's kind of a perfect form of execution, but so miserable that it has to be reserved only for the worst crimes. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, uh, incidentally, as, as Christians, uh, it is... It is remarkably stupid um, for us to hear people who, who say, well, you know, Jesus, for instance, could have survived the crucifixions. Like um, every time I hear that, I always I always find myself remembering uh, your descriptions of crucifixions in A Desert Called Peace um, and in other places in, in your in, in your books. I'm like, yeah, you don't know what a crucifixion entails. Uh, if you're if you're going to think that that's nonsense, it's not possible. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I have such uh, uh, high regard for the, those scenes in your books. They're, they're so accurate. They're so well detailed, um, which may or may not you're speak not likely, to. You're not likely to survive even if they take you down from the cross. Yeah. After about the first maybe day, day and a half. Yeah. Um, in the siege of, I don't think it was Jerusalem, it was some other town. Um, Josephus, who had started as, as a Jewish rebel and ended up as kind of a collaborator with the Romans, observed several of his old friends hanging on crosses, nailed up. And um, the commander, not Tacitus, Titus, Titus noticed this and, you know, asked him what was, why he was so upset. And he said, well, those are my friends. And so Titus had them taken down and they mostly died anyway. Yeah. You know, he gave him medical care as best as, you know, which was really not bad for the day. And, but no, it, it, it does things that you're not going to survive after a day or so anyway exactly it's uh it is a, a horrific horrific uh, uh punishment and uh you know nobody really survived a a true roman crucifixion um and i mean uh, in terms of um the carrera series itself and in terms of um spin-offs there was also one other book i think of uh short stories or something that was published right. I, uh, I might do as many as two more of those right but they're an awful pain in the ass. um <laughs> they really are an awful pain in the ass to do yeah because you have to make I, them... I would like to see uh to see the war of liberation from the un through to the end yeah uh, but right now i'm a little over task so i can't really screw with it Right. Uh, actually, uh, in, in, uh, with, uh, on that point, are there other projects you're working on that, uh, in, in terms of uh, books and such? Well, shitloads. Uh, maybe too many, but I'm delegating pretty well, so maybe not. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple I've mentioned, Unto the Last Generation with Peter Grant. Um, as soon as he gets better, then, then we'll cra start cracking on that again. Right. Uh, Care and cleaning of your right wing, care and feeding of your right wing death squad. Yes, that's, I'm looking forward to that one. That should be fun. Um, I'll use my name, but I don't think my, my British cohort will use his. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Big Boys Don't Cry? Yes, of course. Okay. Well, I'm turning that with a, an, uh, an Oxford, uh, chick actually, um, and then a PhD from Bristol, uh, a STEM PhD, as a matter of fact. Mm hmm. Uh, one Vivian Raper. Yes, that's her name. <laughs> uh, and she, she's a nice girl. I like her enormously. Um, but the court martial of Wrath of Flowerwood, which is what Maggie, actually, Mulan, Maggie Flowerwood, same thing. Yeah. And that will, everything that's in uh, Big Boys Don't Cry will be in there, but it's going to be within a, a, a larger framework <coughs> of, um, of the court martial. Of yeah. the reign of the the Ratha that's salvaged. 
uh, volume four of M Day. If you're with that series, I've got. Uh, and, and you may notice a pattern here is that a lot of these people that I'm doing things with are people that I had contribute stories to the Terra Nova anthology. Yep. Now I didn't, I didn't open, make an offer to everybody because some people who did a story in there are already reasonably, you know, starting to get established. Uh, so they don't really need any of the extra oomph of, of a co-authorship. Right. Um, but the ones that I think could use the extra oomph, uh, they, they're getting, you know, I've, I've recruited them to write a bunch of different things. Okay, so Justin Watson, who is an Army uh, ret medically retired artillery captain with an unfortunate tendency of finding IEDs the hard way. Right. I think, I don't remember if he was the only survivor or one of two survivors when the vehicle he was in was blown up. Uh, and he hung on as long as he could in the Army, and I think it was... He had reached an age and a degree of wear and damage that it just wasn't going to work anymore. But anyway, I put him to, to useful work writing uh, volume four of M-Day, uh, Criminal Enterprise, which is in good part about reestablishing the monarchy in Mexico. Yeah. Um, and then I'm doing the Romanov Rescue, which is probably going to end up as 19 volumes or so. Wow. And that's where uh, Max Hoffman, the uh, German chief of staff, which really made him effectively commander. He was the brains of the operation of Oberost in the First World War, mm -hmm. um, which meant that he had control of the German army, the Austro-Hungarian army, and the Bulgarian army as a major general. It's kind of a, you know, it's a nice position to be in. Yeah. Anyway, Russia yeah. brings to the, to the head. He's negotiating with Bolsheviks at Brest-Litovsk. He just decides he can't, can't stand them. And so he mounts a rescue. Um of ru ru using Russian guards from the POW camps. And that's going to go through the rescue, uh, the Russian civil war, then the rise with which the whites will win, the, the Tsarina will win actually. Mm -hmm. um, the rise of the Nazis in World War II, which will play out somewhat similarly, but Without Stalin's collectivization and the damage done to the, uh, to the Red Army, the Imperial Russian Army is a much more dangerous opponent. Yes. So Hitler can't afford to leave England in his rear. Yep. And he's going to be talked into launching an invasion of England by air, starting about two days after the Germans reach Boulogne-sur-Mer. Mm -hmm. Two or three days, I forget which. Um, in 1940. No Battle of Britain, you know. No attempted sea, sea lion by sea, a, an aerial invasion at a time when the Brits are in just awful shape. Yep. Appalling shape. Uh, and from there, it'll go to um, World War II. We don't get involved against the Germans. Hitler has no reason to declare a war on us because we're not supplying the Brits and, wage <coughs> <coughs> and waging an undeclared war at sea, at sea on the U-boats. Yep. So it's just... It's us against the Japanese, which will lead to some interesting things as when um, French or Nazi satellite France is engaged in the war against the Viet Minh, we side with the communists. Interesting. Interesting. That, that would be very, very interesting. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's all alternate, alternate history um, with you know, a few variables changed here and there, and then you see how it all kind of plays out on a on a world stage, basically. Yeah, uh, and, and it will be there'll be another Cold War, 
Yeah. And eventually a Hockenberg, I think. Yeah. Uh, between us and the Nazis. Who in their way are a lot more dangerous than the communists were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some places where I've just planted some seeds, but we haven't done that much with it yet. Uh, although, you know, people are thinking about it, working on it. Uh, one, an alternate history where um, you, you may have noticed I'm, I'm kind of want to drop what I've been doing and do a lot more alternate history. Yeah. Uh, what if the Japanese had sent a detachment, a Japanese Christian daimyo, had sent a few hundred Christian samurai to help in the Mediterranean in the 1560s and 70s. Now that would have been interesting. I think it would have been a lot of fun. I think yeah. it could be a lot. That would have been very interesting because, I mean, Christianity was stamped out in Japan pretty definitively, but what if it had taken root and just a few uh, hundred or a few thousand men had uh, had really taken it to heart? Uh, what Kind of the other way around. It, it, this is when Christianity is... is starting to become very strong in Japan. Right. But I think we're going to postulate that it's the absence of those 300 men that allows Christianity to be ultimately exterminated in Japan about 60 years later. Mm. Yeah, that would uh, be fascinating. And what, and what a shame. Uh, another one. Uh, are you familiar with Eric Flint's uh, Rings of Fire series? Um, not with the not with his uh, book specifically. I'm familiar with uh, what he does in general, yes. Okay. Well, the, I'm, I could do this with him. I might not do it with him. I might just want to do it myself. But imagine the Battle of the Teutoburger Forest, and there's three legions, and I think Varus has probably already killed himself by this point in time. Mm -hmm. The senior guy takes one of those legions, and, and specific reason why I want it to be the 18th legion, um, and is going to try to use it, reinforced a bit with some cavalry and a couple of cohorts, from the other two legions to try and sweep the, the Germans off the hill where they've got an ambush set up. Mm. But instead of doing that, they get sent forward in time about 397 odd years. Right. And they end up somewhere, maybe in Poland, you know, and they have to fight their way back to the empire. Um, and they'll get there just in time to stop the Germans from coming over the Rhine on New Year's Eve, 405, I think it was 405. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound very political, but it is. Um, and the, the political aspect of it is it's an affront to the presumption of progress, of steady improvement in all fields. Yep. Because these Romans from four centuries before are infinitely better than the, sol than the wretched soldiery that came after them. Exactly. Yeah. Because they still have the old discipline of the legions, the... You know, this is this is like a, right around the time of Germanicus, and uh, um, you know, the, the the legion that gets transported forward in time is is from right around that time, right yeah. at the height of the Romans' military prowess, basically. Yes, um, there's a couple of scenes in my head that have that like okay, the, the centurion of, of the 18th legion is um, Marcus Caelius. Mm -hmm. We know his name because his brother Publius put up a monument. Uh, not too far from Xanten, Germany, I think it was, um, saying that if his bones are ever found or those of his freedmen, they can be laid there um, at the monument. We found it, I think, in the 1800s, 1860s, 1870s, yep. right? And there's a, you know, well, picture that uh, it's not in great shape now, but, you know, in, in 400 or so AD, it's still going to be in fine shape. Yep. 
uh, and picture the 18th Legion marching along and suddenly everything stops, right? And there's this buzz from the front of the thing and Kylie is, <laughs> takes his stick and starts going forward to you know, kick ass and beat heads. And he comes upon a, a ring of, of the soldiers around this tombstone and it's their Legion and it's their Primus Pilus yep. who's on there because they don't know what year it is yet. And he, in his, you know, phlegmatic way, climbs on top of it and says, I told you pussies I was too mean to die. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very, very cool. That's a, that's a really neat concept, yeah. And uh, you're right. I mean, it's, it would be fascinating to see what would happen if you took a, a, a military unit from that, from that point in, you know, almost basically the pinnacle of the Empire's glory and moved them forward to observe the decline of the Empire and, uh, and, and try do their best to, to stop it from happening. And that would be fascinating to, to tell that story. First stop the barbarians and then go fix Rome. Yeah, and, and march on it and, and uh, you know, wipe out all the, the nonsense that has taken root there. Because, uh, I mean, we, we talk about uh, the, the Battle of Chalon and um, uh, what's his name, uh, Flavius uh, uh, Aetius, and all right. that he did to, to, to stop Attila the Hun um, at that battle. But um, the reality is the rot had set in long before, uh, and Aetius was not really fighting with, with Romans. He was actually fighting mostly with Germans on his side, and he himself was half Germanic. So, you know, by that point in time, just, uh, you know, a few decades down the line, um, Rome's, uh, Rome wasn't Rome anymore and hadn't been for quite some, quite some centuries. Right. I, I, I think even the forms of the Republic weren't taken remotely seriously anymore. Um, these guys are, will they reinstitute their, can they reinstitute the Republic? Yeah. I beat this one like a dead horse, so I'm kind of reluctant to do it. But, um, I mean, the solution for Rome as the solution for us is Starship Troopers or the Carrera series, a, a democracy. Yeah. You know, service guarantees citizenship. <laughs> yeah. We had, by the way, would probably make you an American citizen today. No. Yeah, uh, I I wish it were so, but uh, <laughs> um, I I am I am convinced. The more I look, the more I see. The, the more I am convinced that I was taken out of the U.S. at that time for a reason. Uh, not a very fun reason, but um, you know, it's it's been it's been heartbreaking to watch what's happened since then. Um, it really has. Uh, I'm I'm just. I'm shocked to, to see how far things have gone downhill um, in places where I used to, to, to spend a lot of time. Um, at the same time, I actually look to what's coming with a pretty considerable sense of optimism. And uh, I just hope that uh, the people who are still there um, will be okay because the, what's going to happen in the near future is going to be extremely unpleasant. Um, but what's what's going to come after that, I think, will be a lot better. Probably, but, you know, there's going to be a lot fewer people here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they won't all be bad guys. No, no. Exactly. No, we'll, we'll have losses from everywhere. Yeah, we will. Uh, and that's the sad part. I mean, we're going to lose a lot of good people on, on the right and uh, a lot of neutral people, people who thought they could be neutral. They're, they're, they're not going to be around uh, to see what comes. Uh, which is very sad, but it's there's no avoiding it at this point. Yeah. So it is what it is. Oh, shall we? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
you know, would, would, would help. 15 would be great. Yeah. Just so you could uh, get involved in all the, 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 the dirty little details. Yeah. And I wasn't as well known then either. Yeah. True. <laughs> so um, this is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been well, over an hour and a half actually. Um, so uh, I, I guess uh, we should probably wrap things up and uh, you know, finish up the interview here. But, uh, sir, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you. And uh, really, I mean, I really sincerely want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me. It's uh, No problem. I've had a good time. Yeah. By the been... way, do you notice you can't hear a Brahmin accent on me? Uh, Massachusetts Brahmin? No. You, actually, you're right. I, I cannot tell uh, that you're from Massachusetts at all. No one has any idea where I'm from by my accent. Yeah. That's as, astonishing. As soon as happened. I go home, though, the son of a bitch comes right back. <laughs> Exactly. You, you always uh, end up talking the, the, the exact same way you did at home. Uh, how did you manage that? Is it just uh, training Join the or? Join the army young. Uh, yeah. That, that well, uh, there's also something, I don't know, maybe an odd bit of wiring in my brain. In 1972, I was about 15 years old um, and drunk in a beer garden in Innsbruck, Austria. Mm. Spoke fairly decent German at the time, actually. Um, and some Australians at the next table said something disparaging about the U.S. Armed Forces. And I ended up standing on the table making a speech in mixed German and English in an Australian accent I could not get rid of. <laughs> that is astonishing. Um, that, that takes some doing, actually. No I, I, no, no, I didn't do anything. I couldn't get rid of it. Uh, so it's something about hearing an accent and just picking it up more or less automatically yeah yeah I, um, I i think there's a relation there but in any case i don't have the accent normally only when i go home and when i'm normal speaking no one can, they can tell i'm broadly northern i think yeah but uh where nah yeah i mean just listening to i would have guessed you're you're from somewhere around oh i don't know um not even upstate new york uh uh, basically somewhere around the northern New Jersey area because you don't it's it's not a strong accent it's not it's not regionally specific in any way Ohio yeah maybe Ohio actually and even then the, the Midwesterners have a, have a more, more nasal sound to them than you do some parts of it of course you know there's Ohio and then there's Cincinnati and Columbus yeah um, but uh, yeah I, no discernible I won't say no discernible accent, not enough of an accent to pin me down. Yes, that's true. It, it, I, I didn't even realize that uh, it's a very good point you brought up. It's like no Massachusetts accent at all. Um, very strange to, to, to talk to somebody from Boston and he's not saying car, dog, or park. And that's uh, very strange. Well, that's actually, that's one letter, but it's, it's not just Massachusetts. But I pronounce the letter A exactly the way you do, Bob. Right. Yeah, it's uh, odd regional variations is, is all I can say. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was always fun to go around in the U.S. and, and listen to all the different accents from, from different places. Uh, you get that a lot in England and much more in England um, where, you know, you, you go up to the north and, and you can't understand a word they're saying. Whereas you, you go to London and um, they have a very weird accent. There's some reason, the good reason, actually, to believe that the Boston accent is a British accent. Really? From pre-RP days. 
Uh, didn't I, I didn't uh, know about this one. What's uh, what? What are the reason behind that? It's it's a non-rhotic. Uh, I'm not sure what part of England the accent is most closely related to, the New England accent. Yeah. Um, but if you look at, oh God, where the hell did I bury him? There are a couple of books on the subject. One is the story of English. I think mentions it, and I think there, there's a black philolo- philologist, yes, um, who wrote uh, our magnificent bastard tongue, who discusses it a bit too. Mm. But yeah, it's 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 in the main a um, a pre RP English accent. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So it came over with uh, all the colonists from way back when and just sort of stayed ever since basically right it, kind of like the united states in, in general we came over with a, a set of outlooks and values uh in the that dated to the early 17th to mid 18th centuries and we really haven't changed that much. oh other than outside of major east major coastal cities and the chicago area we haven't changed that much yeah you know we're still patriotic violent religious, polite, um, and armed to the teeth. Yep, exactly. And uh, yeah, that, that is the core of America. And that's, uh, that's the bit of America that I saw um, and that I love spending time in. And that's the bit of America that I keep telling people you know, who, who live in the city, guys, you don't know what it is that's out there. You don't realize that this is a very different people from who you're used to dealing with. Um, and they have a hard time seeing that. And I'm like, well, just, you know, drive a couple of hours outside of the city. You'll see it immediately. But, um, so oh, yeah. rural, in, in rural New Jersey or upstate New York, mm. again, like those little towns in Massachusetts, they're not that different from lower Alabama. Yeah. Or central Mississippi. Um, which in the case of, you know, both Alabama and Mississippi kind of includes the blacks. They've got a lot more in common with, they're white rural neighbors and they do with the city blacks. Yeah, exactly. They know it too. Blacks are often quite wise in ways people don't expect. Yeah. That's my experience as well. The inner city blacks are, um, are one particular breed. And then you go outside of the inner cities and you go to the countryside and they're, they're a very different bunch out there. Um, they, they behave differently. Um, they're much more rare, but, they behave fundamentally very differently and they don't seem to take uh, too kindly to being lumped in with um, inner city blacks. And I mean, I, I make this mistake on my blog, you know, I'll, I'll cop to it um, where you sort of lump everybody together, but it's not the same. They're not the same as, as those people in the cities and they cannot be treated the same. No, they're, they're, th- there was a fine old black gentleman here in Montgomery County, Virginia. He was an army veteran. And as soon as his, um, his kids, boys or girls, reached of age and graduated high school. He marched them down to the army recruiter and he put them in the army. Mm. Not only because he thought it was good for them, but because he thought it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So he's a lot more typical. Um, I think in now that wouldn't happen in Blacksburg because Blacksburg is like Harvard. Yep. But outside of Blacksburg in Montgomery County, Virginia, yeah. They have, um, they're, they're very different from inner city rabble. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the kind, uh, doing all the burning and rioting, uh, these days and who are, uh, actually, you know, 
uh, ironically, doing the most to harm their own community. But uh, like, oh yeah, they think, I think these businesses are going to come back. Yeah, they it's not going to happen. Right. We 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 need to. I mean, liberalism is did more damage to American black folks than slavery did. Yes. They recovered from slavery pretty quickly and well. Yep. Liberalism, now nah, that's a gift that keeps on giving. But one of the, the steps in um, in recovery might be, I'd be willing to do government funding for this one. Take high school kids and bring them to Detroit. And let yep. them see what Detroit is like. Yep, exactly. Uh, there is a reason why Detroit ends up the way it does. Camden ends up the way it does. Camden, New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's it's an inv- it's an in- invariable and inevitable pattern, and it's uh, it's tragic. It, it is it is horrifying to see, but it's like, well, what do you expect? This is what these policies do to people. This is what this group ends up doing to itself. Um, it's going to happen. Yep. So, anyway, um, sir. Uh, once again, uh, absolute pleasure, real honor to, to talk to you. So thank you so much for taking the time. I uh, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I think uh, we'll wrap up the recording here. And, uh, you know, uh, I should have this posted uh, shortly onto the blog. So uh, thank cool. you again. Uh, any, Let any me know if you're ever going to visit the States. Uh, I will. I will. And I will try to stop by uh, Virginia and uh, say hello. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Take it easy, Sorry? Take it easy.